0: Welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Summeru. Hey everybody, super excited to get this episode out for you today. So my guest, is Meta Dierenberg, and she is the CEO of MyMe. So they have got a patient and data-centric approach to tackling autoimmune disease, and it's based on helping people identify their unique individualized triggers. The results of their brand new clinical study in lupus patients was just published in uh, JMIRS, showing clinically significant and meaningful improvements in quality of life among patients so uh, uh, through that lens uh, by correcting her own autoimmune disease by just analyzing her own data it's an awesome episode we get into some really cool topics i hope everybody enjoys it so meta welcome to the health tech podcast how are you doing this morning very early morning for you in fact
1: Yeah, I'm. it's it's actually quite funny because I'm one of those people who, if I could, would go to bed at 2 a.m. So uh, 5 a.m. is wow. The, this is me stumbling in the dark, but I guess that's an <laughs> entrepreneur journey in general, right? <laughs>
0: Absolutely. Uh, a journey of uncomfortability all the time. Getting comfortable with being uncomfortable arguably is one of the definitions that you have to conform to to be an entrepreneur. It's a very comfortable 10 a.m. for me here, I will just add. so. I'm sorry that I've got you up at 5 a.m. Like, as oh, I say, no, I could have no, rescheduled no. it, but <laughs> but no, glad it to. Uh, it wouldn't be,
1: it wouldn't be uh, determined as a roller coaster ride if it didn't well,
0: Absolutely. It and, you know, you can test it. See how productive you are today. Who knows?
1: Maybe maybe it's my new me.
0: Maybe it's the new you. Uh, new year, new you, I suppose. Um exactly. When this goes out. Um, so, better listen, the way that we start. Oh, well, in fact, let's do this. Whereabouts are you speaking to us from today? Just okay. so we know. So...
1: Yeah, my name is Meta. I am the CEO and founder of a company called MyMe, and I'm based out of New York. I am- Oh, very nice. I'm originally from Legoland, also known as Denmark.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever been to the (laughs) Legoland?
1: Oh, I grew up 45 minutes from Legoland, so I even took my first driver's license there. (laughs)
0: amazing love it um so listen what we do to begin normally is we get you to tell your story and so what people do is they tend to start you know whenever they had their first dalliance with entrepreneurship or indeed at university or when they had a condition that led them into it I obviously know that you're I've read about your story um not too much though but I've read about your story um so that I definitely know that it's interesting and I know where it's led to but for the benefit of our listeners why don't you give us the long version
1: well, if, if if you're saying, well, the first uh, endeavor into entrepreneurship, it started when I was three. Apparently, when my father built me a small wooden stove, uh, my grandfather from that day on had to pay for lunch <laughs> uh, for my little stove, and apparently... The joke was that it was the same coin that he paid me with every day. Amazing. Because apparently, I gave it back to him every day because I wanted repeat customers. Amazing. Well, that's me
0: thinking you're a social <laughs> entrepreneur.
1: <laughs> Some conscientious
0: capitalism, but no. <laughs> exactly.
1: Yeah. Oh. So um, yeah, so I um, I dabbled with different companies already in my teenage years, um, and then, you know, in my early twenties, actually studying. Um, I built a cleaning company, and it was really mostly because as an economist, I was very intrigued by strategy and leadership, Mm. and I thought to myself, I can sit here at university and read about this, or I can try and do it, and I was like, there's nobody who's going to give a 21-year-old a leadership job in any way, form, or shape, so unless I built the job, it's not going to happen, so I basically... Um, built a company around the structure of how how to to sort of re reth- you almost have to think about in the U S we have something called Handy but think about like Handy in like the 90s uh, Denmark so um, w- the idea basically was to change the way people thought of cleaning because I think to a large extent it's about trust it's letting somebody into your home there's a lot of different aspects of it that, um, that plays a large role. So, uh, so it was, it was an interesting thing. And I, I basically built sort of like an offline algorithm. I had, you know, if you were a lawyer, you would have a law student working for you. I would always have people meet beforehand. And it was, it was my first endeavor into the space. And when I sold, I had 160 employees. Wow. And, uh, and I really am thankful that I started out in such an unglamorous space because it really taught me that in the end of the day, it all comes down to relationships and people. And if you treat people right, they treat you in the same manner. So I think um, that was sort of my, my first real company. And,
0: and That's amazing. So you sort of, it was like personalization almost of... of- cleaning and and that process which is super interesting i suppose yeah because what cleaning companies can i even think of that would that would uh i suppose profile the customers and give them a personalized experience probably probably none but it sounds like that's what you guys did and arguably what handy do
1: exactly and and i think what it was about meetings meeting people where they were and their needs where they were right so our typical customer was a family successful family in their early 30s with kids and a lot of needs. So there was also the benefit of a lot of hours. So you could pour your energy into these clients because they actually there was a a huge return on on the on the individual family. But it was also about uh, making sure that there was a relation right. And I I've prided myself in like 10 years after I moved from Denmark, I ran into one of my former employees in the street. And she said, well, you know, you used to say to me that everything came down to those moments. And she goes, I actually work as a partner today in the law firm that I used to clean for the owner of. So it was sort of interesting to see that, you know, there is something to to be said about that.
0: That's amazing. So she went from cleaner to partner. (laughs) She was a a student at the same time, I imagine, but still. Yeah. God, so, the, P, the PR and the press on the back of that must have been uh, writing itself, honestly.
1: so Anyway, so not to spend all of my time on a cleaning company that's, you know, 20 years uh, ago, because it's actually, this year it's been 20 years since I sold it. 20 years ago, wow.
0: You don't look yeah. old enough for that to be the case. How old were you even started so, the company?
1: Um, so I was 21.
0: Wow, that's yeah. incredible. Yeah. Congratulations.
1: Thank you but i think the the big thing for me really was that as as a sort of parallel to me being entrepreneurial and curious about the world i also had this personal problem which was that at the age of 14 i had been diagnosed with an autoimmune disease and you know really spent the first half of my 20s in and out of hospitals and the second half of my 20s accumulating more disease labels and and setting out to be a chronic patient and what has always sort of um, distinguished my the companies I've built has really been about solving for a problem. Um, in this case, it wasn't really with the idea of building a company. It was really solving a personal problem. And autoimmune disease has traditionally been looked at as over 80 diseases based on where the body was getting attacked. And we're fundamentally asking a different question, which is why. And when you're asking that question, you're essentially looking at the mechanism underlying it. And that was what was interesting um, to me at that extent. Um, But to sort of pare it back, obviously, you know, when you set out, I had this idea that personalized medicine would sort of, you know, sort of show up as a part of the, of, of the journey. But to be fair, in that moment when my doctor told me that there was nothing that they could do beyond um, the, the treatment I was getting, it was very clear to me that it was up to me. And you might be disempowered as a patient, but there is an empowerment as a human being in that moment of, of sort of taking back the power. And in my case, as an economist, I really did the only thing that I knew how to, which was turn to numbers. And so at first it was journaling in little notebooks and then turning that information into um, Excel spreadsheets, uh, seeing that there was a lack of metadata. So it started texting myself so that I would know when things had happened and really starting correlating. And the beautiful thing about when you write things down is that you start paying attention. So it became very clear that there was a big correlation between what I did and how I felt. And in five months, I proved I wasn't a cardiac patient. And I had done weekly EKGs, blood thinners, cholesterol lowers, you know, whatever my grandmother was supposed to be doing, I was doing in my 20s. So I thought, wow, every time I got another autoimmune diagnosis, they always told me it was because of my underlying cardiac issues. But if I actually don't have that, I should be able to actually reverse all of it. And I think from, from the beginning, the fact that I didn't know anything about healthcare was really my lucky stroke because as much respect as I have for doctors and for everything that we've learned to date, autoimmune disease is really incredibly heterogeneous. And so the frequency and the severity of symptoms, as well as the response to any treatment, vary from individual to individual. So not knowing anything meant that all I had to do was look at my own body, my own signaling, and really using that feedback loop was how I was able to, in 16 months, normalize my blood work, reverse six autoimmune conditions, and taper out of all my medications. So I've been wow. drug free for over eight years now. So it really, if you think about it, was applying um, process optimization, like a Deming or Agile process to your own body. So thinking about your body as a closed-circuit computer system that needs debugging. Because audioimmunity generally is one of those... Um, You know, I always laugh about it, but it's like autoimmunity is characterized as your immune system, quote unquote, getting confused and attacking itself. But in what other huge disease area would we be okay with, like, confused? Like there is there has to be some explanation for what's going on. And so what we do today is um, is we basically built a program that has sort of three legs. First, it's an app for data collection. Then it's data analytics to analyze the patterns and understand what is actually going on using the timestamps and the insights. And then it's turning those machine learnings into human behaviors by having health coaches shepherd people through the program. And I always think of it as sort of replacing lab work with computer power because at the end of the day, when things are removed in time or otherwise hard to decipher, it's like looking for the needle in the haystack, um, our minds are not the best tool. This is something computers are amazing at, figuring out exactly that, you know, three hours and 10 minutes after a Diet Coke is when your also, colitis is, is flaring or whatever the, the case might be. So... Um,
0: It's. I mean, it is fascinating stuff, and I'm not just saying that. I've been involved in a few conversations recently about um, about about the origination of disease and the origination of conditions, and how epigenetics fits in. How interestingly, you know, people say that a virus causes a common cold, a virus causes coronavirus, but actually, there, there are studies that if you put a virus in someone's nose only 20 to 40 percent of people actually get the virus so actually the virus is a cause but it's a small cause there's also 60 percent of other at least of other potential causes that might be very similar to the sorts of things that that you're looking at you know overdosing on caffeine too much adrenaline um you know under exercising overeating like all of these things can can also be causes for all of these things And i think the interesting thing for me is that you know, as a, as a young doctor, I'd have been extremely cynical about anything like this. As a I don't, perhaps I don't mean younger, I just mean inexperienced. I suppose I would have been extremely cynical. But the point is that as I've got older and 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 got myself more involved in technology and digital therapeutics and behaviour change as a mechanism as of prevention, it seems that you know, what you're actually doing, and I wrote it down, is that you're you're collecting data on people's behavior. You're then analyzing that data and applying machine learning. And you're then saying that X equals Y. You don't want Y, so don't do X. It's, it's pretty much as straightforward as that, but it's then applied in a very complex way to, or not even a complex way, but you're ending up with Um, the the resolution of a complex condition because you're noting these trends and you're doubling down on what works and it's a very scientific process that actually
1: it's it's a completely data-driven process yeah
0: and the the goal is obviously the behavior change and that is interesting to me because again as i as, as i get older in in this space prevention is better than cure we know that we we don't want to be papering over the cracks with cure and not least for the for the moral argument for the if, even if you just go down the economic argument that hospitals are extremely expensive places to run and actually there are plenty of things that we can do before people end up getting there and this being one of them yeah. I'm also, I also want to draw attention here to the fact that you you use humans too. It's not just a pure tech solution, the robots are going to save us type thing. You're using health coaches to enable that behavior change. And that, again, is interesting to me. I think there is a, a reliance on <laughs> oh, technology. I was going to say that just, there is that reliance, I think, on people or perhaps a... a, a a miscommunication from the technology world and the health tech world that we think apps are going to save everyone. We think that downloading an app on the app store and just tracking something is going to do things. It's not, it's the behavior change. I think it seems that companies like yourself also accept that the adoption of it is the big thing, making it sticky, making it work into that person's life, that personalization that's obviously been a key theme for you in the companies that you've built. Tell me about that, that kind of, and I've heard it described before as a blended model of, of technology and humans, but it seems to me that that's really how you make these things stick.
1: I think from my perspective, you know, obviously I've, you know, researched avatars and virtual <laughs> and all these different things. And I think in the future we might, we might blend things up, but I do think that as an autoimmune patient, you have typically spent five to seven years undiagnosed and getting a diagnosis is sort of on everybody's horizon right but if you're an autoimmune patient getting diagnosed actually doesn't necessarily lead you to a resolution uh, three out of four people fail the specialty pharma drugs meaning you know you spend a lot of time just being essentially for many women at least being told it's all in your head and then once you get diagnosed it's still an uphill battle there's no resolution really so i think um, if if you were going to be in a position of of taking some of people's hope and i always talk about hope accounts but for someone who was a struggling patient for 20 years i was so overly optimistic and naive that i kept going to different people but the reality is i probably should have stopped long before i did and i think every time you use up a little bit of hope that you have that you can find a solution and I think as a solution, you have to be very um, careful around how you treat people and that hope. So one of the big things for me is that having humans mean you are in a position. We, we don't hire anybody who has not reversed their own autoimmune disease applying our methodology. interesting. And it's actually imperative to me that the person who shows up at our door, has enough faith in us already to, to jump off, you know, sort of a leap of faith in terms of believing that there's something out there that can help them. And we have to take um, that really to heart and, and make sure that we honor it. But we also have to not sell something that's fake. We're a data-driven company. We are, are run by those metrics. And when people initially, you know, our biggest hurdle as a company is when people start. They typically say, "Well, I'm too afraid of hoping this could help," because the reality is, I've tried so many different things, and I've, you know, I was three months at Mayo Clinic. I was at Kenyon mm. Ranch. I was this and that and the other, and none of it helped. So why can you? And our response is, you're not supposed to be, you know, just throwing all of your sanity out the window and and praying that we will do the job. Actually, we believe that the data and the benefits to you in your day-to-day life will be convincing enough in and of itself. So if in three weeks time you have not felt any benefit from working with the Miami protocol, then we might not be the right thing for you, but let's at least give it a try. We've helped, you know, lots of people before you, so let's let's take this leap of faith together. In order for somebody to take that leap of faith, they need to feel safe. And having somebody be their shepherd through that journey who's already undergone it and come out successfully at the other end, I think is a big part of it.
0: Mm. I want to talk about when that hope runs out as well, the fact that at some point there, there needs to be, I suppose, for the... For patients like yourself, this decision, it can be framed as patient empowerment, it could also be framed as personal responsibility, or whatever it is, but seemingly, you're not getting better. And something needs to be done, and it seems like for an entrepreneurial person like yourself, you you seem to view that as personal responsibility. I, you know, you accept the responsibility that I'm just going to have to take this into my own hands. I'm going to figure out a way to make it better, and I'm I'm, I'm going to sort it. Do you think the respo- I mean, do you think the responsibility should be on individuals to take care of that prevention and and that side of things, or do you believe that either now or one day in the future this should be part of the actual health systems and it should be funded centrally or for, or however different countries do it, obviously through insurer models or whatever it is. I mean, wh- where do you think the responsibility is? And I suppose that line between empowerment and responsibility of, of expecting people to sort it for themselves or indeed whether it should be the system.
1: So I actually, you know, have a, have a huge belief that we should become standard of care in, in the future Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't necessarily see this as a sole personal responsibility. I, I'm, you know, as I said earlier in the program, I'm, I'm from Denmark. So, um, having grown up in a country where there's a safety net, um, has very much impacted the way I look at the world. And I think, you know, autoimmunity is in the U S one in 10 Americans, um, it's 78% women. Uh, higher jump prevalence if you're of color, higher prevalence if you're poor. Um, I actually don't think it's fair to say, you know, because you've been dealt a bad hand, now mm-hmm. it's also a responsibility to get out of it. I think that it's society's, um, it's, it's a bit of a both, right? And I think that there has to be um, a way to help people who's been put in very compromised positions. Um, you have to give them a hand. Um, and, and they might have to do some of the pulling themselves because mm-hmm. unfortunately our program does not do itself unless you're willing to, you know, spend a couple of minutes a day to actually, you know, snap a picture of everything you eat or record your symptoms or whatever it is that you're being asked to do. Um, we, we're not going to be able to help you because we need that data. Um, but I can tell you that there is, um, there's even a higher motivation from somebody who has not seen society as being necessarily their um, aid up until the point that they stumble upon Miami. And I say stumble because we've, we're we just coming out of stealth now. So we, we've you we know, we've done a lot of work, um, particularly with, with payers and with clinical validation. If for us, it was important especially, you know, wanting to be a covered benefit in the future um, to really show out that not only can we clinically prove out that our solution works, but we can also show the ROI. And the only way to do that was actually proving it out with insurance companies and showing that not only can we reverse disease symptoms, we can reduce
0: cost. I love that because that that's where the key is, and I suppose the reason I asked the question is because I, I was going to go on to what you've just said, which is, have you undergone that clinical validation? Are you looking to become you know procurable by health systems and things like that? But it definitely seems like you're on that route because you're absolutely right. The the whole argument for prevention is that there's ROI. The whole argument for prevention is that it is cheaper and and can be centrally funded or funded by whatever health system it's involved in. And I think that has to be, it has to be the future. And as you say, no matter what your politics are, at the end of the day, well, I heard it put really well, actually, yesterday, when someone said, on this occasion, the science is influencing my politics, rather than the politics influencing, or my politics influencing my view on the science. And, and actually, that that's just it, right? I, I think that when you, when you even put the moral argument aside, as I say, the financial argument for prevention, the financial argument for getting these things done uh, by health systems should exceed any other argument, quite frankly. The difficulty is, particularly in the UK with five-year political cycles, it's getting it to pay back in five years, but that's probably a conversation for another day. I'm interested now in the technology itself that you're using.
1: Yeah, um, so... So just to just to put sort of a loop on that. Yeah, go for it. You know, you know, there's a lot of recent study findings that show that the prevalence of ANA, which is the key indicator of having an autoimmune disease, have increased dramatically over the last thirty years. Oh, and Wow. So when when you're looking at like when I say that there is one in ten Americans affected, well those numbers are from two thousand and eight. Mm. We we know that both autoimmunity and pre-autoimmunity have been going up and up. And not only that, but we're seeing that COVID-19 and the confluence of all these residual health issues resembling autoimmunity long after people have you know, recovered COVID, it's all coming together, right? Because we've always known virus and infections are the biggest trigger for autoimmune disease. But we've just never been in a position where 70% of the population is hit by a virus the way that it is today. So I think when we are talking about these things, also have to say, well, there's going to be a point where the burden on the population at large is just too big to mandate. So we have to figure out how these things are correlated very early on. And today, there's data showing that 77% of autoimmune disorders is caused by environment and lifestyle. So when we are looking at these things, we are, we are basically, if we're saying, at least for the 20 years that I went to doctors asking, is there anything I can do about my psoriasis, about this or that or the other, I was always told, no, you know, use this cream. There's nothing you can do. They, there's some, and then they would, you know, quote some specific study about one or two things. But, you know, we, we see people eating it all the time with no problem. But the reality is that 77% of what you're doing is caused by these things. And I think to a large extent, the the people who come to us, and then I'll get on to the technology question, but the people who come to us, they have a hundred different rules, but they're intermittently cheating on all of them because they have no idea what actually works for them. So Mm. what Miami does is they provide you with a blueprint. We help you find the needle in the haystack. In my own case, it was chicken. Like, I promise you, if somebody had told 15-year-old Meta, stop eating chicken, I could, have, I could have easily done so. But the reality is that instead, every well-meaning doctor, nurse, friends, dog's sister had a good advice for what I should be doing. And the list just accumulated. And at some point, you basically just don't even know what to do other than navigate sort of the minefield you've created for yourself. And so I think when it comes to the technology, the power is that once you have timestamps, the body is a beautiful machine. So I think of it as the body is signaling constantly. We are just not attuned and we're not trained to listen. But we take all of that body signaling and we turn that noise into understanding. And that's the key. And that is something machines is really good
0: at yeah and actually before before we before we move on to the tech in a bit more detail i think um there's something you said there that reminded me about this we need new models of care particularly right now we talk about covid19 yeah in the uk because i've just written a forbes article on this in the uk there are now 4.4 million patients waiting for treatment. Over 150,000 of them have been waiting for longer than a year. Now, that has obviously gone up enormously since COVID-19. And it strikes me that where we are right now, more of the same is not going to get rid of that backlog. There absolutely needs to be new ways that we do things. And I think,
1: and not only only that, but on top of everything else, I just read an article this morning that one in five is becoming COVID long haulers, which means you're not recovering. Whoa, that's interesting. So, so, and and we've we've been working unofficially with a big hospital here in New York since the since the inflection point this spring, and what we are seeing is that COVID long hauler. Is basically an acceleration of pre immune disease. Yeah. So we we are in a position where th- there might be a big burden of, of disease that we pushed in front of us, but we unfortunately also in the making of one of the biggest uh, sort of inflex points for autoimmunity that we could ever have imagined.
0: Wow. Yeah. And I think we've been good at innovating where we've needed to in the UK historically and also recently with things like the vaccine. And I think with this backlog, with things like that we've got in the UK, like NHSX, which is the organization that's really taking a hold of like our digital strategy and and really plugging AI machine learning and and things like that. There's a central organization that's sort of oiling the wheels of a lot of this innovation and technology. It seems to me that now In health tech, particularly in the UK, I hope, there's going to be an openness to new models of care. There's going to be an openness to new technology that is proven and that has gone through that clinical validation, like you talked about. And it just seems to me that it's going to be an exciting time because I think there is. I mean, there has been increasing amounts of venture funding into, into health tech. That means that there's a lot more service infrastructure around health tech companies and what they need and what they do. There are more people on the, on the demand side, the hospital side, that are, that are now getting skilled up in health tech and different technologies. It seems that, and it's an overused term, but the, the ground is getting more fertile. The ecosystem is getting more mature. And I think I think this year has been a, a really interesting one. In the background, lots of things have happened to facilitate the adoption of new technology in response to COVID-19. And I think attitudes have changed. And I, I think new models of care are going to emerge. I think companies like yourself, and I don't know if you've got any activity in the UK, we'll probably come on to it in, in a sec, but like. Companies like yourself that can have it that have a genuine value proposition of a means of addressing that backlog for organizations, which there's, there's going to be financial incentives around clearing that backlog, I imagine, for, for different organizations. There probably already are. So I, I think it's an incredibly exciting time for health tech. Um, but yeah, no. tell, me, tell me about your tech. I'm interested in, in the technology that you actually use work. because. So
1: essentially, it's a custom tailored mobile app. That lets people easily capture personalized information about their diet, lifestyle, and how they're feeling. And we use this rigorous data. It's basically a, a rigorous data analytics process to analyze the data for hidden patterns, slowing, correl- showing the correlation between triggers, symptoms, and ultimately better outcomes. Mm. Um, my dream was really to make it possible for people struggling with autoimmunity like myself um, to feel like themselves again. So the name MyMe actually comes from this idea of mirroring yourself, the MyMe. And I always see MyMe as sort of like the doppelganger because hmm. we think we know how we live. But if you interviewed 10 of your best friends around how they eat and you then had them take a picture of everything they eat, I could tell you that those two are not overlapping. And it's not that people want to be dishonest about how they live, it's just that we do something and then we make exceptions, except when that exception becomes the rule. Um, And I think we we forget um, sort of what we've done or we make false positive correlations, right? So the amount of people that we see that have a list of 300 things they can't eat, and the minute we figure out that it's actually cauliflower and broccoli that you can't eat, then you can reintroduce all the other things that you haven't eaten for years because you thought they were reactive. But it was because you had, let's say, a stomach issue or migraine or something, and you thought about, what did I just do? But the reality is that without the timestamps, it's impossible because... It might be something you did 20 minutes ago, but those things people generally figure out for themselves. Like I have a sensitivity to Brazilian gum. I tell you, whenever I eat ice cream, I know within 20 minutes if it had Brazilian gum in it or not. So those things people can figure out on their own, but if it's 72 hours or if it's three days or longer, it's impossible for your brain because you've had 20 meals since then. How would you know? And so... One of my favorite moments uh, in Miami was when one of the clients said to a coach, the best thing about Miami is that not only am I out of a wheelchair and like symptom-free, I can cheat and get away with it. <laughs> girls, hmm, okay. When you say get away with it, what are you referring to? And this, this girl says, well, I had ice cream yesterday and i have absolutely no symptoms and she goes like this because she didn't used to be able to even Mm. close her hand and the coach goes okay let me just take a look so she opens the computer looks at the data and she says to her well actually when you have dairy you don't have bowel movements for 68 hours and my guess is that on monday between two and four your hands will start to clamp up Mm. and when her hands You know, a couple of days later, at the exact time that the coach had predicted, clammed up, the penny dropped. Mm -hmm. And she was like, oh, my God. The reality is that whenever you get better, you sort of forget that there ever was a different reality. So most people start doing things that they've actually known not to be good, but they get away with it, quote, unquote, get away with it. But the accumulated effect of these near misses actually becomes so much of a burden on your system that all of a sudden, one little thing becomes that thing that overflows the glass. So a lot of times, like I was laughing when you earlier, like I wasn't laughing out loud, but I was internally <laughs> sort of struggling when you were talking about other root causes. Because I used to have sinus infections all the time. Like, every year i had drainage you know like hospitalization like pipes out of the nose you know the whole shebang my childhood was every year that was just how it was. and then as an adult at some point i was sitting somewhere i actually it might even have been in the uk because we, we collaborate with doctors in the uk on sort of the experimental front and i said oh i'm so dry and she goes well actually have you tested the humidity in your apartment and I was like, no, went home, tested the humidity and realized that actually I was drying myself out to the extent where maybe getting a humidifier would make a difference. Since I installed a humidifier in my home, I have not had one sinus infection. Wow. So again, it, it's sort of the chicken and the egg, right? Yeah. Because clearly, genetically, I'm, I'm predisposed to having this issue, but knowing exactly what it is. Similarly, like, you know, everybody else in January, they, you know, go on these like diets. I go on a January diet too, but it is that I cancel my Netflix subscription for the month of January. Because I know myself so well that I know that when I sort of binge or eat the things that I wasn't supposed to eat and stuff, it's typically because I'm tired. Mm -hmm. And when I have Netflix, And because I'm, you know, as I said, I end up, you know, especially now because it feels very tricky. It's like 20 minute episodes and you never really figure out that you've seen (laughs) because it just sort of like comes at you. Right. But actually I lose weight that month, not by actually implementing 10 different restrictions on myself, just by cutting Mm. my Netflix subscription. So understanding the causality between a b and then what comes next is what um, i think is important and that's also why i don't think to come back to the personal responsibility i think it is extremely unfair to look at somebody who's overweight and say shut your mouth or to look at somebody Mm -hmm. with all community and say you should have figured out what this was because the reality is that if it was so easy why was there no direction? Why was there no one out there that could help me figure it out? Um, It's not like an autoimmune patient is sitting at home keeping it to themselves. They're generally going from specialist to specialist to specialist being told that it's very confounding. It's very complex. And yes, your particular case is, yeah, it's probably even more complex when somebody gets told that it's a complex problem over and over and over what they get to as a conclusion is there must be a very complex solution. And who am I? When in reality, when you think about it the way I do of like process optimization, a little bit of something good and a little less of something bad might actually give you a long way, but you're overwhelmed, you're tired, you're like the the, the reality is that it's hard to take those first steps, which is why I think having that human hold your hand through the process, I think is an important thing. And I also think that when you have machine learnings, if you don't translate them into people's behavior, then it doesn't matter. I could you know, say to anybody what would be a good fix, but if it's actually not a sustainable behavior change that people will, will do as sort of just a second nature, then it actually doesn't matter.
0: I completely agree one thing that i'm interested in well in fact a couple of things um the border of, of where what is the jurisdiction of healthcare? right because again what you're talking about there is a hand on your netflix account or a hand on on the i don't know the the responsibilities that you give your tv to allow you to watch stuff but Again, it's interesting, isn't it? And not to get philosophical or political, but you know, healthcare and housing historically in the UK were linked uh, in the same department politically. And like, you can see why because housing is obviously going to have an effect on people's health extremely directly. And I, the, use, I suppose the, the modern equivalent can, is is what you just said them. about the humidifier as well. Like, literally, in your something in your house can can help you if if the air is clean. And it's in, it's, it's interesting to me that I suppose. As we as we move on in health tech, and we talk about prevention, and we talk about B two C models, or insurer models, or employer models, or whether it's something that's centrally for like, it's interesting where the boundary of healthcare actually is, and and who should pay for it. It's all it's always interested me that I think as we as we go on, there are more te- so I- more and more technologies for the individual, but yeah, it's who pays for them, I guess
1: i think at, I think at the end of the day i i, I don't think so i 'm sort of i 'm sort of in between right because i don 't think that we should always expect our employer, our insurer our society to to take care of everything. There has to be some deployment of self efficacy, mm. but when that 's all said and done, why should we pay for Six thousand dollar injections that works or fails, actually in this case, three out of four people, but they'd not be able to let people um, be consulted by somebody who can help them figure out the root cause of why their system is doing what it is as as an intervention point. I actually think at the end of the day, um, where we are is obviously the government can 't regulate how much netflix you 're watching. Or- <laughs> You know if whether you're eating, you know broccoli or not, and it shouldn't be. That's the personal responsibility. But I think as as a healthcare system, if it becomes to the point where it's 100% clear that hey, we can take these severe disease states and reverse them and slow disease progression by implementing a protocol that allows people to understand what's going on, then I think we should we should take that under consideration. Um, but it, but it, is, it, is a, it is a discussion that you and me could literally go on a and on long about. Long. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, I'm also in a dict- dictonomy in the sense that coming from Denmark, uh, I'm, I'm the chairman for the dig- digital health tech hub in, in Copenhagen, which is all this, the digital software solutions. And obviously COVID-19 has been a tremendous help in actually implementing a lot of software into the Danish system and then living in New York City in a system where, yes, there has been a tremendous change. And for us in autoimmunity, it has been f- profound, right? You know, coming into 2020, nobody even understood what an immunocompromised patient was, never mind any of the, the, the more educated lingo around w- what, it, what it means. But we also had you know, I think 2% of rheumatologists that had ever done a virtual visit and three months later it was
0: 87%.
1: So, So all of a sudden you had some major landslides that are changing the way we are treating, but it's also changing the way they're viewing the world, right? Because at the end of the day, we are not in competition with physicians. We want to be a tool in their toolbox. We know what an impossible situation they're in. It's not like rheumatologists don't understand triggers. They understand this better than any of us. Believe me, especially I'm an economist. What do I know? (laughs) The reality is that how are they going to be able to figure it out? They meet people for seven minutes every three months to sort of evaluate the situation and go on. But they're not necessarily in a position where they can figure out what is it actually that you do on a Saturday night that's different from a Tuesday night? And what we see typically is that maybe people have it down to the coin from Monday to Friday, but then on the weekend, something happens that sort of kills the system. Understanding the nuances of that, what are the differences? Why are the differences? Backing them into behavior changes to actually alleviate that. How could we expect somebody to do that in seven minutes? So I think at the end of the day, it's going to be a combination of having specialist whether it's rheumatologist gastro dermatology in, in combination with these technologies so that we can ensure that the patient doesn't get stuck in today's world the patient are pretty much stuck between you know in some cases a doctor saying dietary and lifestyle is bullshit it doesn't work and others saying oh no it does and the patient is sort of going from one person to the other not really knowing what should I believe in and in some cases, i think just giving sort of a, a security to the process um, would would mean a a great deal to many
0: i was going to I ask you actually about the attitude and no, i sorry go on, go on.
1: so i think in our case you know we we've, we've we've managed you know over 60 different disease states at this point including people that are undiagnosed autoimmune and you know, also this year, a lot of COVID long haulers. And what we've shown is that the process involving has been over 850 different unique symptoms. We have over 90 triggers identified, over 85 interventions, and we have more than 3,000 different labels reported in the tracking. And when I use these stats, generally people's eyes just sort of glaze over because if you're not (laughs) as me in love with numbers what the hell does it mean? Well, when I say 300 unique labels, that means that even though we only had 60 diseases, you had these people come through the program and use their own language. So when, let's say you are, you're tracking pain of an RA patient, mild is achy joints, moderate is mobility issues, severe is I can't get out of a chair. I've never met a client who didn't know how to, when they couldn't get out of a chair. So you make it their language. And because of that, they see it as a reflection of themselves. And on the back end, you have it as clinical data so that you can pull and draw the learnings from one patient and, and use them across the population. But the reality is that we are, we are in a position where that's not really how healthcare has traditionally been done, Right. Nobody really wanted to be like talking about 3,000 different labels or, you know, oh, what works for one doesn't work for the next. Because what we'd like to do in healthcare is to say, okay, all of those people over there, they have lupus. So it's attacking this part of the body. They're all the same. They need this intervention. All of these people have this thing in common. So let's put them over there. The reality of what we're seeing in our data is that a lupus patient might have more in common with a cardiology patient or, you know, whatever, Crohn's patient than the other lupus patients. So it's about looking at the tail. It's figuring out, are you coming into autoimmunity from a respiratory perspective, from a gut perspective, from a, like there's so many different entrance points. And that's actually more important than how your body is shutting down. So it gets, it gets to the point where I think you could make it complicated but instead of complicating matters we sort of try and decipher down to the process and say well what we know works is this so let's try and apply that process and see how far we get
0: i think when it comes to health tech entrepreneurship i think this is a there's a really interesting point here that you made towards the start of that answer which was you're not trying to interrupt what the clinicians doing you're trying to complement it and i think there's something here about the healthcare system, and you know, take that to include clinicians, organizations, healthcare systems, everything that's in place to care for people when they get unwell. Those systems have evolved over a significant amount of time. They're extremely good at what they do. There's always going to be an element that's going to be not as easy for them to do. And in this case, the more and more that we get towards that personal responsibility and prevention, it becomes increasingly difficult to get involved in that for the healthcare system, arguably. And I think this is a really interesting area for entrepreneurship, because if you can build tools that can help those clinicians, that can be, as you say, another We're member of the pieces. team.
1: We're yeah. all different pieces of the puzzle. And in order to see the beautiful picture, you need all the pieces of the puzzle to actually fit together.
0: Correct. Because when I was going to, I was going to ask you about the attitude of clinicians and organizations towards your product. And I think that when framed as we know you're good at what you do, which is dealing with lots of information about the patient and coming up with both the scientific and an artistic point of view of what needs to be done next we're just the tech company in the background that's going to feed you more info and we're going to feed it to you in a really nice palatable, very UI UX friendly way. We're going to do it quickly and and we're going to incentivize the patients to do that in in, in their own homes, in their own times. It's just going to benefit you at the end of the day. And I think what you as in the clinician, when you're making that decision so that you as the clinician feel you're making the best decision for the patient, you're getting it right. They are getting better. You are getting fulfilled from that element. And then from the systems point of view, if the CFO does want to have an opinion on it, well, at the end of the day, that patient doesn't need to be seen as often. They're not going to have as many flare-ups. You're not going to use as much medication or surgery on them. And therefore, your population in your area is going to be better off and you're going to be better off financially. And I think all of those arguments end up being true. And I, and I really like that. And I think that the other bit that I just want to touch on here is that you're not from healthcare. You have fresh eyes, you 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 are an expert in the problem in being a patient, which I think has a huge amount of importance, but at the end of the day, this is not a, and forgive me, a health tech company. You're not ingrained necessarily in, in lots of healthcare process or anything like that. It's a tech company. Yep. It's a company that takes data, finds correlations, and then presents them in nice outputs. For those it's other people to then we, use it.
1: We often have the conversation internally around what kind of company we are. And because, you know, the naturopathic doctor will say, we are a very holistic company mm. and tech staff will say, well, we're a tech company clearly. Mm. And everybody has their opinion. And I said, well, the reality is that we are a beautiful blend of all those different things because it's oh, well, true. Like, Cause you've
0: got the human element, the coaching. The, yeah, that is true. Yeah.
1: Thousands of years of learnings in Eastern medicine that we completely discarded in the West because it wasn't laid out in a way that we understood. But once you actually turn that into data, well, all of a sudden it's no different, right? The way I look at it is we're basically replacing lab work with computer power. Mm. And, you know, who, who are we to say that one is better than the other? It's just that it takes... A long time for people 's minds to sort of wrap themselves around a new paradigm, and the reality is that we in in the u s for example, celiac disease has been a known disease for years. there is a test for it still only one in five people get diagnosed, and we know that the ramifications of being undiagnosed celiac are crazy, right people teenagers on psychopharmaca it's like it's it's I don't know if I should say shit show, but I'm Danish, so no away. But, it, it, but for many, it, it really is a long and very painful journey to figure out. And all they had to do was just take gluten out of their diet, right? Who are we to say that among billions of people, there isn't other reactions that are similar? So, you know, I'm allergic to chicken. Is it a protein? Is it an enzyme? Is it Whatever. We don't know yet, but a lot of times with innovation, it's sort of, you observe something, you replicate it, and then a decade later, you figure out why it is. Today, I might not as a company need to understand why you specifically are reacting to egg or broccoli or cauliflower. In many cases, we do know the reason, but in other cases, we have no idea. We can just see that you're system is reacting in a similar fashion to a celiac patient to gluten to this or that. And if we take it out, all of your symptomology goes away, or at least is significantly reduced. If that's the case, why would we not do it just because we don't have the scientific two lines underneath yet? I think it's it's sort of um the path that we have to take as an evolution in healthcare is to say it's not perfect yet but it's as good as as good as it gets is to actually be looking at the patient and understanding what is beneficial to the individual and then once we have enough individual learnings we can line them up next to each other and figure out what's going on we can already now say and we've only had, you know, we've, we've still in the thousands, we're not like a major company, but we can still at this early stage say that if you have lupus, there's certain organ involvement that you have that are specific to you that has not even been described in medical history. And that's fascinating, because once you start actually making these small new discoveries, you start painting a new picture of what's out there. And I think if you, can, if you can keep painting, at some point, you might actually be able to take that layer up and say, well, where do we then look in the genetics? How does this impact the DNA? Because right now, you know, you, you have a meeting with like the leading genesis in, at UCSF, and they're like, yeah, we've basically mapped out um, MS. The problem is it's 96% of the population that fits the criteria. So then what are we going to do that with it? But if we could figure out what is the one or two things that actually differentiates them from the rest of the population, then we would have a much better shot at getting ahead of it.
0: This acknowledgement that there are some things we don't know, I think is very, very important. I think it's, it's also, it's almost like, There's an insecurity amongst, and I don't want to name any particular professions or anything, but even, even I kind of manifested this possibly as a, you know, again, a a junior doctor, a medical student that you, it it attracts people that are logical, it attracts people that are scientific and therefore you kind of think that there's a a process and an answer for everything. But I think it, it reminded me when you said that so much of Eastern philosophy, Eastern medicine, was just kind of rubbished in the in the Western world and just like if we can't prove it scientifically it doesn't exist. It's just interesting now as you say that the more that science goes in depth, the smaller molecules that we're looking at, the smaller processes that we're looking at, and actually we're finding correlations in things that seem to make sense a few thousand years ago. And and that also interests me. But I th- I think, yeah, th- this kind of this kind of insecurity about not knowing things is is a funny one, I think, in healthcare. I, I remember and I think I'm remembering this correctly that, you know, when I was doing my anesthetic exams, there are some, you, you know, you, you, there, there's some anesthetic drugs that you think, you know, what receptor it's working on. You think, you know, why it knocks you out and reduces your consciousness. Oh, you don't really know. There is, yeah. there, there are some that you just like, well, that's okay. If you ask any, you know, if you ask Brian Cox, you know, astrophysicist, I don't think he's an astro, but he's definitely a physicist. He's happy with just like, I don't know. And saying that sometimes. And I think, by doing that we then open up these new areas for discovery we open up as you say there are new fields of epigenetics and you know chemistry biology quantum physics like whatever it is like there are by saying i don't know and then allowing yourself to explore that and being open to the fact that we might have been wrong previously i think is a, is a real superpower. And I know we're getting pretty ph- philosophical here, but like, no, but,
1: but I actually, I, it's, it's one of the things that we train people in very early on coming on board in Miami, whether you are in tech service or whether you are seeing clients is there is a perfectly good answer to most things, which is, I don't know. Yeah. And if you don't know, please say so because <laughs> at the end of the day, if you lose the trust of the person you're talking to, it doesn't matter that you're right 99% of the time because it's not all the way. Right. And I think as a, as a company that does what we do, we initially not so much anymore, but initially people had a lot of thoughts like, well, people must be lying all the time. I'm like, why the hell would they? <laughs> the reality is that they're sick and they're trying to get help. And they're like, well, you know, most people don't really want to say what they're doing. And, you know, I'm like, This is such a cynical view on the humanity. I am so sorry, but we didn't build that company. We built a company Mm -hmm. that wants to empower people to reclaim their health. And in order to do so, that I choose to believe in you. Mm -hmm. And I believe that with that approach, we as humanity is just going to get a lot further. Does that mean that there is not doctors out there that are skeptical? Of course not. But it's our job to convince them that this is something that they should consider. It's not their job. It's our job to educate. It's our job to ensure they understand what it is that we do. We've, we've spent years just trying to take and decipher what we think is so simple into something that can actually be translated into something that's simple to the person on the other side. It sort of reminds me of, um, of, a, of a small anecdote, but it's, um, I, when I started training coaches in the technology, all of the data analytics and stuff, of course, wasn't in place. So a lot of times I would show like a screen and it would have like red dots and blue dots and yellow dots and whatever. And I would say, so, you know, if you look at a patient like this, you can see that there's a big difference between let's say weekdays and weekends or something super simplistic like that. And somebody would put up the hand, and they would go, how would you know that? And I'm like, well, because you can see that there is only yellow dots from Monday through Friday and none on the weekends. And then you can see this correlation between these two kinds of colors and whatever. And people were like, okay, so how did you figure that out? And I'm like, well, you just looked at it. Like, (laughs) I was very frustrated because people didn't seem to really take up my methodology of of teaching. (laughs) And after a while, I realized, it's just because all of us view the world differently. Mm-hmm. And I was on FaceTime with my brother, it's like a year ago now, maybe even more. And his son, who is like a replicate of me, was lying on the floor making a puzzle, but he was doing it with the backside flipped up. Oh and so I, so I said to him, "Lowers is his name. I said, "Lowers, if you turn all the puzzle pieces, then you can make the picture that's on the outside of the box. And he goes, well, on he made already did that side. And so I made a joke to my brother about his autistic child and we laughed a little bit about it. (laughs) And 10 minutes later, whatever, two minutes later, my father walks by and not really to me or my brother, but more to himself. He looks at my, my nephew and he says to himself, huh, I haven't seen anyone do that since Meta. And it made me think that I've probably always viewed the world in patterns. Hmm. But one of the things about us as human beings is that we take for granted that what we see, that what we experience is similar to what the person next to us is doing. So mm-hmm. when when we have like I had a dad call me and say that he had just like bawled his eyes out because his nine-year-old daughter had said to him, And Daddy, the best part about Miami is that now I don't have stomach ache. You know, like the kind of stomach ache you have whenever you wake up? And he had said to her, What do you mean, stomach ache? I didn't know you had stomach ache, and she goes. Well, doesn't everybody? Because she had never known different. So she had never told her parents about waking up with a stomachache every day because to her it was normal. It was, and I think that's the biggest problem in healthcare is that we take standardized metrics and we make them true. The reality is that there is no such truth. There are guidelines. But guidelines, when enforced over long enough periods of time, become truth. And that's problematic. It's problematic when I, in a lupus study, all of a sudden notice that I have a significant amount of people that are getting Botox in their faces for myoplasmia. And I thought, that doesn't make any sense. So I started interviewing and I realized they were all severely magnef- magnesium deficient. So we gave them you know, high dose of magnesium, none of those women are getting those Botox injections today. Were they low according to the traditional metrics? No, but the reality is that when you have a thousand issues, you have to have some guidelines to look at. Yeah. The problem is if you are an outlier and you don't fit into that nice bell curve, you're generally taken out. Mm. Think of Miami in the opposite way. We are only looking at outliers. And when you collect enough outliers, then they start actually having beautiful patterns emerge in their own right.
0: Oh, I love it. We need to wrap up, but I want to know from you, whereabouts are you right now with miami in terms of, you mentioned coming out of stealth mode, you, you mentioned work that you're doing with the UK for research and obviously you're based in New York, so you must have stuff going on there. Yeah, what, where, whereabouts are you with, I suppose, your, your rollout, your go-to-market, your scale, indeed, if it's got that far?
1: So um, we started out in the payer market, we also in the self-insured market, um, and it was really to validate the product and, and the clinical side of, of the spectrum. Um, It takes a long time to get adapted in the market in general Um, but we're going out to consumers this year. Um, We believe that it's everybody's right to be able to choose this. Uh, Would we want to pave the way for reimbursement and having it be a covered benefit down the road? That is definitely some of the work that we're going to do but we're not going to be sitting on our hands waiting for that to happen while patients are suffering. So we are going to go direct to the consumer. And we also believe it has the benefit of if people have to put their money on the table, the solution has to be that much better. There is just something about the healthcare system where if your doctor gives you something, you're sort of okay with it being clunky because, well, it is healthcare, and you're sort of laughing at it. It's given to you in a room that looks like it was taken out of the 1970s, anyways, right? But if you're if you're renewing your Peloton subscription, or if you're renewing, you know, any other uh, Netflix subscription or whatever it is that that is your um, favorite, it's generally because it's easy to use. You, you, you love the benefit that it gives you, in it, it allows you to solve for a problem. And that's what we believe ourselves to be, and that's who we want to be. We want to be a trusted partner for the individual. Nice. And when I talk about the UK, it's, it's really because I was fortunate enough early on, mostly actually, I guess, because of Rangun Chatterjee, he included Miami in BBC One's. Oh, wow. Story. And um, and because of that, I went to a couple of events uh, with functional medicine practitioners in London and was lucky enough to cross paths with some brilliant practitioners who I actually, for a couple of years, flew every quarter to the UK to meet up with them. and And it's been a big part of my education to continuously learn from physicians. I think that we way too often Sort of silo ourselves from knowledge, uh, and I think, especially when you try and make something almost seen as impossible initially happen, you can't ignore any of the the critical voices. You have to include them, and and that has been a big part of this journey for me.
0: Love it, um, Matt. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. I think there's obviously so much that that I love about what you're doing. The fact that it's a technology company blended with that human element that's trying to enable behavior change. It's in prevention. There's, I mean, there's, there's so much to to love about this stuff. And I think there's, there's plenty of people that that will probably want to get in touch with you or the company. If they do want to find you, um, or, or get in touch, what's the best way for them to do so?
1: It's very easy. myme.com M-Y-M-E-E M Y M E E.com. Um, just shoot us a message. and We're always happy to, uh, engage in conversation and, and, and learn from others as well as helping people along the way.
0: Amazing. Mata, thank you so much. My pleasure. Hey everyone. Thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media. So you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.